Welcome to Saving Cities. I'm Jack Story, and in each episode, a member of our team hosts a conversation with an expert in a place-related field. That could be anything from accessibility to zoning and everything in between. Today's guest is Diana Lind. She's the author of Brave New World, published by Bold Type Books. The book is an incredible balance of the history and potential futures of housing, and it does a masterful job exploring how we as a society came to form our views around home ownership. Let's get to it. So thank you again for taking the time to talk. And uh, I wanted to start, the book is really, really good yeah. um, and timely. And it splits itself pretty evenly between the history of housing in the United States and then kind of the potential futures of housing. Uh, and you offer a lot to think about. And when I was kind of getting ready for this interview, I was torn between which bucket to spend more time on, uh, history or future. I'm going to attempt an equal balance like you did. But before we get into all that, I wanted to start with a little bit about you and your background. Uh, how did you get started in this arena? Sure. Well, um, I talk a little bit about this in the book in the sense that, uh, you know, I have always written about urban policy issues, but I hadn't really been focused on housing um, in particular. Um, I've always written about architecture and design. Um, but when I had my first child, um, I just started to spend a lot more time at home. And I had not been the type of person who spent a lot of time before. I would always just be out and about, and I kind of was at home to sleep. Um, and now I was, you know, in my home with my family all the time. And this was pre-pandemic, but, you know, I think a lot of... Uh, first-time mothers particularly would say that those early months of taking care of a newborn are a little bit like being in quarantine. And, um, and so I just started to think a lot about housing and um, housing choices and um, how I had come to make my own choices for my family about what I thought we would want, you know, what kind of house we want to have. Um, and I just was uh, kind of perplexed by, uh, you know, sort of the the ingrained belief that single family housing um, was just the way to go for me personally and for the country. And I just started to really look into why was that so? Um, and I also, I, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in apartment buildings. I spent most of my life in a 42 story apartment building, um, very different kind of context than the row home I live in in Philadelphia now. And and, um, but in that apartment building, we had a super who could help you if your, um, you know, your pipes got blocked or something like sure. that. They could help you with that. You had a doorman who was um, picking up trash outside of the building. You had um, a lot of kind of just services that um, would help any, you know, any person who lived in the building uh, with their their day in a, in a way. And it, so it just also dawned on me that we spend not only so much money on our housing, but so much time on maintaining our homes. And I, so I just wanted to start to explore this. Um, and I realized pretty soon there afterwards, there was enough there for a book and, uh, and started to go into that direction. Um, and that's really, that's, that's the genesis of the story. But I think it was, it was not an intentional path. I mean, I started out interested in, in all aspects of urban policy and then just got really into housing. And I think it's an issue that I will continue to be very interested for the long term. It's a great, it's a, it's a complicated one. Um, I've worked in affordable housing uh, for the last decade in and out uh, between that and economic development. And it's, it's a constantly evolving and very strange beast. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I think that was one thing that it, I also wanted to discuss in the book or, or just kind of write a book that was uh, going to be accessible to a lot of different types of audiences, because mm -hmm. I found that so much of the conversation about housing was really um, very, in a way, segregated between people who are experts in affordable housing and policy wonks, and then people who think of 
you know, who look at housing from, you know, an HGTV perspective. And there was, there's a lot of place for discussion in between those two ends, um, but not a ton of books that I think were are written for that spectrum of audience. I agree. I agree. I just uh, got done talking with last week, Shane Phillips, who just has oh, an, yes. uh, another book on this topic, but is a little bit more about the policy. And I think your your book coupled with his is a really powerful new step forward and being able to communicate with people. So that's kind of exciting. And the thing I, I really enjoyed about your book is that it taught me quite a bit about housing as patriotism, which mm. I didn't really know about. I, I hadn't thought about it in that context in the Hoover administration and, and uh, or not the administration, right? This was pre that. And so mm-hmm. Hoover's kind of obsession with home ownership. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I found that sure. super interesting. Yeah. So one topic that I wanted to explore was in a way, how home ownership and the value of home ownership is a construct, much in the same way that we're having discussions about how race is a construct or gender is a construct. The idea, the inherent value that home ownership is somehow better than renting, um, you know, is also something that we have a construct we have created, a narrative that we have built. Um, and so, uh, you know. To give a, a very brief snapshot of that first part of the book that looks at the history of single family housing, I really try to look at how, you know, in the beginning of the country, there was just a lot of different housing choices between, um, you know, you if you moved to a city, particularly if you were a young man moving to a city for professional reasons, you would probably live in some kind of temporary um, housing situation at an inn, at a boarding house, and so on. This was really kind of the way that we welcomed people into cities. Um, and there were just, you know, lots of different types of housing, lots of families, um, most, maybe not most, but, you know, a significant portion of families living in cities either um, housed borders or had themselves at some point been a border in someone else's house. So that was super commonplace. Um, and uh, and that was, uh, that was very commonplace up until really, um, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and this comes at a time period when there had been, I mean, just the the 1800s, a tremendous amount of population growth. And right. I, I meant to actually do a little of my own research on my own book of looking back on some of the stats. But I mean, just, you know, the population grew so much in the 1800s. And then there was also a tremendous amount of immigration um, in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and and really housing, especially in cities, could not keep up with um, that population growth. So there was a there was a real overcrowding problem, um, particularly, you know, people are very familiar with the Lower East Side tenements and so on. Um, and, uh, and as a result of that and of, you know, an increasing number of popular culture kind of conversations about housing reform and things like Jacob Rees's How the Other Half Lives, yeah. um, there was a real focus on thinking about how to make housing less crowded. And also, I think there was a, a great deal of sort of class and racial segregation um, starting to happen at that point, um, along with the proliferation of cars that uh, really started to push people towards this idea of, you know, the initial suburbs. Um, and so to get to your point about, you know, patriotism and uh, how that all plays into it, um, there was a, an own, own your own home movement that, um, you know, not, not so surprisingly now when you look at what's happening with the pandemic, this started in 1918. Um, and so, you know, the year of the flu, um, I think that I haven't fully researched the connection there, but I think there has to be one in terms of um, this push in, in terms of a national movement for um, owning your own home and also trying to get people into more private individual spaces. Mm-hmm. Um and so Hoover was um, the secretary of the um, Department of Commerce. He um, really kind of used his powers there to try to spur um, things like uh, essentially um, standardizing construction pieces to make building housing um, 
uh, more accessible and easy and fast. Um, but he also really kind of played up the moral and uh, value aspects of owning your own home, that you were essentially like morally superior owning your own home. Um, and, uh, and that this was also in a way kind of getting back to some of those old American values of thrift and saving and so on, that if you could save for your own home, you were um, sort of, you know, in some ways a better person is, is really kind of the message there. And so, um, you know, that is really the beginning of what I would say is the, the, the century of the American dream, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, where, uh, people see home ownership as a uh, a pathway not only to financial security but to some kind of um, being a better person or a better class. Um, and and yeah, I, I think that sort of history of how uh, it was very initially intertwined with the government from a very early stage um, there in the in 1918 um, is interesting. I agree. And a hundred plus years later, there's still a pretty, uh, that's a pretty normal conversation, right? Home ownership is still viewed as this, Hey, you're you're doing right. You're doing well. You, you made it at least uh, an impact in your life. That's going to really pay dividends for you. Um, even though we've had a couple of moments in time that have dispelled a lot of those myths. Totally. And I think, you know, the biggest problem is just that I find here is not that home ownership is a bad thing, but the way in which we have not built a comparable policy for renters, mm-hmm. we've not thought about how homeownership is so uniquely tied to that single family home typology, how um, property values and maintaining property values leads to all sorts of unintended consequences um, in terms of you know, how we zone our cities, um, who gets to live where, how we, uh, how much housing costs, all that sort of thing. So I think that, um, you know, the idea of homeownership is not is not a bad idea, and many people still will say it is the best way to um, ensure a person's you know financial well being. But uh, I think it's also just one part of that larger question of what housing means for individuals and families. I agree, and and so. I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure that we pointed out a couple of things that happened in the Great Depression, just because I think there's a lot of correlation between that and what we're kind of going through right now. And mm-hmm. we could be careful if we learn from this history. Um, the Federal Home Loan Bank Act of 32, but, but more importantly, I think the big one is the National Housing Act, which established the FHA or the Federal Housing Administration, which is still... Um, a large driver of a lot of these low interest, no interest uh, and other kind of, of loans for folks. And then we kind of get into post-World War II, right? So that stuff goes into that, but then really the GI bill um, Mm -hmm. and some of the stuff you talk about there, I think is really important because it shot up, right? The home ownership shot up from, I I think it was 44% to 60, some 62. Mm -hmm. Um, in a relatively short period of time, like two decades, mm-hmm, under right. two decades. Right. So, so starting from that point, so we've gotten this a lot of legislation, a lot of government intervention, um, and then Lyndon Johnson. So I know that that's like a sprint through about fifty yeah. years, but <laughs> that's fine. Um, that's really when our housing, kind of the the contemporary, weirdly, uh, sixty years ago. But our version of housing, can you talk a little bit about how important the Great Society era housing policies are in shaping what we're what we're doing now and how that was influenced by some of those older yeah. um, policies that I just ran yeah. a sprint yeah. through? Sure, totally. So I think what's really interesting, uh, and then I something I read quite a bit about is how um you know, following the Great Depression, there was um, a bit of a movement to create public housing um, and to um, support sort of the quote unquote worthy poor. Um, And the um, types of housing that got built, um, particularly during the WPA, some of it was gorgeous public housing that um, I think, or, or, have learned was um, 
essentially opposed by some of the real estate industry and lobbyists there um, who felt that that by creating such nice public housing, we would be devaluing private sector housing. Um, and so what you end up having then is also, um, you know, a an increase in, in other types of public housing that don't have that same kind of um, care and craftsmanship and money put into them. Um, and then you have the uh, great society period of, um, of constructing a tremendous amount of housing and, um, and a real investment in um, the, in, in HUD um, at that point. And um I think that one of the what happened at that point um, is that the housing that got built was at a time when, you know, to your point of thinking about where we are today, um, you were seeing a lot of white flight from uh, from cities. And so you have these you have public housing being built in cities that are not seeing the kind of appropriate investment. They're seeing tremendous amount of segregation and, um, and essentially like a government that has, has created a lot of housing, but maybe hasn't thought quite as much about ongoing maintenance thought costs and how to um, maintain the housing long-term. Um, and, uh, and there ends up being quite a bit of a backlash. And I talk about this a bit in the book in terms of, you know, the 70s and 80s, the ways that people viewed both public housing. And this is really where you start to see the move away from housing types that are not single family housing in cities. So um, just density, because it is associated with a lot of the public housing from that period, um, you end up seeing that kind of frowned upon writ large um, in cities and uh, an increasing amount of, say, um, exclusive zoning that prevents things like um, SROs and multifamily housing mm -hmm. um, in certain neighborhoods as a way for, you know, particularly in, you know, in cities and in suburbs as a way to kind of contain what was seen as kind of, um, you know, the the ill effects of say you know dense public housing um, in cities. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting get answering your question there, no, but that's a little bit of kind of that thread from. Um, and there's so much more, of course, about this in in the book. But I think that um, the you know there there were uh, there were ways in which following the Great Depression, we really invested in housing as. Uh, a way to build we wealth um, among white people, right. uh, white families. Um, and and I feel like there were, as to your point about um, the GI Bill, the mortgage interest deduction, there are a lot of various different ways in which we have incentivized that. And I think that part of the discussion about what those incentives and subsidies um, uh, have created in the housing industry um, hasn't been entirely explored. I agree. And uh, you brought up one of my favorite and most infuriating books in years, which is The Color of Law. Mm -hmm. um, and that really, if folks haven't read that, they should also read that as a uh, yeah, companion. Because yeah, much more authoritative account on um, just racial segregation through housing in the country. And it's important to continue to put that narrative underneath what we're talking about, because we can't talk about housing especially from an investment standpoint without acknowledging that the government itself really has led the super racist golden era of uh, houses, right. housing. Um, and so that's something that, you know, we got to acknowledge all the time. And uh, you brought up Pruitt Igo, which is, have you gotten to walk that space? Have you ever have, gotten to go? Of course we, we, I think we have Michael Allen in common. Yes, um, and so the amazing Michael Allen of, St. Louis. Um, uh, yeah, of course I've, I've been there and, uh, and that is, you know, seen as the poster child of, uh, public housing gone awry. Um, for sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't the, know. No, it's to uh, kind of talk about your maintenance point, right? So the government, right. This phenomenal, a, a neighborhood, a whole neighborhood of housing, um, and just completely neglects it, just completely leaves it. Um, and now it's an urban jungle in St. Louis and it's uh, 
it's a fascinating thing, right? It's, it is urban porn or it is that kind of thing. Right. Yes. Talk about, um, right. Horrible sadness, but. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, I think it also gets to that point and it's something that I think about right now when there are calls for, um, increased public housing, which, you know, is a much longer and broader discussion. Um, but I think sometimes there's not an awareness of um, the building housing also means maintaining that housing for the long term. And that definitely seems like, you know, part of the issue that's happening with a lot of different um, public housing authorities right now is that they are, um, uh, they are not able to actually maintain the housing that they have at this point, given the federal investment. Um, and, you know, if we had been investing at the levels that we had been during the Great Society, it'd be a different story. Um, but we're not there. And I don't know if we will get back there ever again. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's not one of the policy solutions that I really go into in depth at the end of the book, but something that I really talk about is how can we. Um, really kind of do associate supporting people with supporting housing. Um, and you see that right now with calls for things like um, universal basic income or for um, rental assistance that is mm -hmm. not um, as closely tied to the housing itself. Um, you know, the question is, should we be supporting people? Do they know best what kind of housing they need? Because maybe for some people they you know, need more money for transportation, for food, for medical expenses, and would more happily live um, with relatives or in some other kind of situation. So I think that, you know, it's, it's a much bigger conversation about how we want to support the vulnerable. Um, but I think that our, um, the, the public housing that uh, really in the, in the 1970s, that was probably the uh, low point in terms of public opinion, late seventies, perhaps. And then we get, uh, Ronald Reagan who comes up in every conversation and he's either, <laughs> uh, beloved or, or not so much. Um, and in these particular instances, he really, he really did a lot of damage. His administration did an insane amount of damage to both, um, public housing and also just support in general for federal housing initiatives. Um, but let's just, let's ignore that because that will be less fun to talk about. Let's just jump. The last part of the history lesson here mm -hmm. um, is current history, which is the millennial generation and kind of the trends in their capacity uh, to purchase houses or their desire to purchase right. houses. Uh, and then also, you know, being sandwiched in their adult lives between two massive economic recessions totally, yeah. and how that kind of plays a physical role in the, in the built environment world because of the ability to do to purchase, but also a mental uh, game on, on that generation of which I am on the cusp mm. of. Right. So mm. it is a fascinating kind of view that you go through and I want you to kind of explain uh, your take on that and what you learned in your research. Sure, yeah. So a lot of what I am looking at, both in terms of, you know, how we've ended up with the housing that we have and, and where we're going with housing in the future really depends on what happens with this youngest generation, millennials and even younger. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and what I, I try to show is that we have built a lot of housing in this country with a very outdated viewpoint of who the end user is going to be. So, you know, if much of that housing in the post-war period was built with a white heteronormative family of four in mind, that is not the uh, the biggest demographic in the United States anymore. Um, young people, um, are much more diverse, much more likely to uh, to not get married until they are much later. Marriage is a very good predictor of um, home ownership. Um, much less likely to have children. Um, for families that you know, couples that do get married, um, there's still a, a divorce rate, a substantial divorce rate. Um, so then to be in kind of potentially split families or blended families. Um, 
we have older adults who are, um, you know, who are living longer, who are, um, you know, potentially not looking to live in a retirement home. So we just have so many different types of demographics that are, um, are with us today and housing that is really geared towards um, a demographic in the past. Um, for young people today, like you mentioned, there has been um, just, you know, economic distress upon economic distress. They're not, um, younger people are not as likely to have um, the funding to, to purchase their own home, um, the job stability, um, to be able to even, uh, you know, sign on to a long-term lease that requires you to prove your salary and your ability to pay, um, you know, a year's worth of rent and so forth. Um, and so what has really been required and what has started to emerge are new housing types that really kind of uh, respond to who is actually living in the U.S. and what do they want from their housing. So a lot of young people don't necessarily, many of them would love the financial upside of home ownership, um, but don't actually want to be tied to one place, um, don't want the maintenance of a home. Uh, lots of people would like to live in a city, um, but don't necessarily want to pay for buying all their furniture or would be happy to have a tiny room and, you know, have experiences instead of the furniture itself. So what I, you know, really tried to show is that um, by the 21st century, the, the kind of wants and needs actually bring us back to that kind of housing that we used to see and a, and a real housing crisis in terms of affordability that requires us to think about, um, you know, reimagining what a boarding house, what an SRO, what um, multifamily housing, what accessory dwelling units look like, what multi-generational housing looks like, because that would be so much more conducive to the ways that people live today. And certainly I would say, you know, a lot of people have asked me, is, is your book still relevant because of people quarantining and everyone wanting to have their own private space and private backyard? And uh, I've really seen both anecdotally and in terms of, you know, co-living operators um, bring in more funding, um, you know, the push for multi-generational housing, all of these trends are going to stay with us post-quarantine and things like digital nomadism, which I talk a little bit about in the book, mm -hmm. which felt like, you know, how many people are digital nomads at this point? And it's like, well, actually, many of us may be after this whole experience. Right. I really do think remote work is going to take off. And for some people who have the luxury of living in various different places, why wouldn't you if you all you need is a computer to be working off of? So you bring up luxury. And I think that's an important way to kind of start talking about co-living from the way that I read um, that section. So now we're, yeah. we've gotten through the history and now we're kind of in the what's either current and then also some of your thoughts and recommendations on the future and co-living I've, I've seen it. I've been pitched it by developers. Um, it's, it's kind of like a sorority or fraternity <laughs> for adults and it's the luxury plays into that, mm -hmm. right? Because, and you use, uh, we live, which is part of WeWork, mm -hmm. as a as a good example of that. It's not cheap. Like co living mm -hmm. as an idea is not a cheap idea. It doesn't really reduce price. It's not affordable housing. It's just a different choice and a different type of living arrangement. Yeah. Do you have something to? Yeah. What yeah, do you think? I have a lot to say about it. Um. So, what I like so much about co living is, um, first of all, that it is. In some ways, it is a niche product. It's not like this is going to work for everyone. Lots of people don't want to be, you know, co-living. I would, people have asked me, what is the definition of it? Um, and I don't know that there is a specific one other than to say it is a kind of living where you have some private space to, you know, live and sleep in, but it prioritizes the um, common spaces where, um activities are programmed and interaction is um, intentional and it is an intentional community um, and interaction is expected. That is sort of the way that I would describe what 
you know, typical co-living is like these days. Um, the co-living um, works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone, but there is definitely a demographic of people who are you know, who don't want to live alone um, and who would rather uh, live, have some degree of privacy, but live in a space where they actually have a built-in social network, who don't want to have to go through the whole challenge of setting up their internet account, setting up their, you know, water and heating bill, buying furniture, all that kind of stuff, and want a ready programmed living experience for themselves. Um, that's who it really appeals to in the market rate sense. What I also really love about co-living is it destigmatized share house, shared housing. Yeah, so sure. you have um, you know, places like New Orleans, which has encouraged co-living as a way to more affordably house service industry workers. Um, and there's an example of a development that was given a sort of tax freeze in order to keep that housing affordable. Um, New York City recently launched a series of three pilots of shared living for low-income uh, people in uh, in East uh, East New York and in East Harlem. Um, and these are examples of essentially creating a uh, housing type that we associate with luxury and now uh, figuring out a way to provide it at sort of the other financial end of the spectrum. So I think that um, it's, I think it's great that people are thinking about ways to build community and housing because that is so much of what is lacking in our housing and in our, in our neighborhoods these days. Um, and I also think that it could potentially be a way for uh, us to house more people more affordably. Um, you know, whether, what price point it gets set at and who it is marketed to and so on. I think it's up to ultimately the operators for that. But I, I do agree to your point that it's not, you know, for market rate co-living, you're not saving a ton of money. It's just, you've changed how you're spending that money. Like people would, you know, some people would much prefer to have, um, you know, someone who's making coffee in the morning for them. Absolutely. And, uh, I was going <laughs> to say, that's the part of it that appeals to me is I don't, I don't mind the idea of having stuff ready. And uh, the programming certainly sings to me like that. That sounds great. Um, I don't, it's, it is, there's a lot to consider inside of that um, particular model. And then that kind of, so you're bringing up the New York stuff and then tiny homes, which is the next kind of, chapter and, and mm -hmm. the things that you break down a similar thing, right? It, it feels very fad oriented from where I, from my position of, of having been pitched this and I've seen mm -hmm. some of the most horrendous con conceptual designs you can think of. And I like the idea of tiny houses, but I have not been impressed by any of the versionings of them that I've seen. Uh, it, it's a complicated it's, a, it's all complicated, but yeah. tiny houses, the value of them is so high right now. You can mm -hmm. find a lot of these and the market rate for a, a tiny home is insane because of the HGTVs and because of the kind of Netflixian or glow around it. Um, yes. And so what do you think about that? Like, I, you know, they're sure. mobile homes for rich mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think it depends on uh, on how the tiny home is used and and what you know what example of the tiny home that you're thinking about. Um, so in the chapter where I am talking about tiny homes and accessory dwelling units, um, I'm really trying to look at uh, how we how frankly the private sector could provide more affordable housing. There's just only so much that you can charge for a small amount of space. And so the thing that's appealing to me about both, you know, accessory dwelling units and, and tiny homes is that some people can only afford 200 square feet. Mm -hmm. And we have essentially outlawed that in much of the country. And so it, by making a case for providing more housing that is a small space, uh, we're both legitimizing and allowing um, people with a smaller price point to come into the market in a way. And so some of the examples that I give um, of tiny homes, there was one example of 
essentially a uh, community activist, affordable housing community activist in Florida, who was, you know, and people also roll their eyes at shipping containers, but it works in, say, in a warm place like Florida. Um, but, you know, he is look lives in a wealthy area kind of near Sarasota, where teachers who, you know, teach children in this wealthy area with the good public schools can't afford to actually even live in the communities where they're teaching kids. Um, and some of these teachers are young, you know, young professionals who might be fine with living in, say, a tiny home for a year or two to, to live there affordably, to not have a long commute and so on. So his idea was really, you know, how can we refab, refurnish these shipping containers with a cheap kit of parts to be able to provide a $37,000 tiny home that private homeowners could then, uh, you know, just put in their backyard and rent out to someone for cheap. Um, You know, that was sort of his vision there. There's a lot of different versions of this that you could imagine. A lot of people right now in particular are thinking about like, how can you house your, um, you know, your millennial child in your house when they don't want to be um, sharing the bathroom with you or having to see you and hear you all the time in the house. And things like accessory dwelling units or tiny homes could be um, an answer to that or to aging parents um, and so on. So I think that there are a lot of options there. And frankly, the kind of HGTV is is really just, my sense is a very tiny amount of the market. It, most of it is kind of like the mobile home, but again, sort of with lots of other types of housing that really got stigmatized in decades past, this is a way, again, of destigmatizing um, a type of housing and making it sort of acceptable to have you know, what in, in a backyard. Um, the question is really, you know, for a lot of, um, a lot of places out in the West, like in California and in Oregon have, um, reformed their zoning laws to allow for, uh, accessory dwelling units and, um, and tiny homes in, in backyards. And I think that that is, it's a game changer for some people who are trying to figure out how can they cope with rising costs. They need to be able to bring in some kind of income um, as well. So there's, and, you know, on the, on the demand side for people who are demanding, you know, smaller, cheaper housing. Um, And I think that the, the whole thing is, you know, people will say, well, it's not, super humane to have someone living in say 200 square feet and calling that a home. And, um, and I think that for a lot of people who are housing insecure, the question might be, am I going to sleep in my car? Um, or am I going to sleep in a tiny home? And I think this would be a step up from that. Um, so, you know, figuring out how to do that in a way that is, um, you know, that works for, low-income individuals is going to be really important. I agree with that. So I love the ADU side of what Mm -hmm. tiny houses could be used for. Mm -hmm. I guess my view of tiny homes from a practitioner standpoint is that folks have only ever pitched me new development. Right. Right. And so I I hear about a community of tiny homes or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With a, you know, there was one, uh, it wasn't my project and it wasn't pitched to me, but it was a Cleveland project where I know they were pitching it and the market rate on this, I think it was a 350 to 400 square foot unit was going to be upwards of $300,000 in Cleveland, yeah. Ohio, in right. Cleveland, Ohio, yeah, right. which is my hometown and the greatest place on earth, but houses, right. mansions don't sell for $300,000 <laughs> in Cleveland right now. So uh, I love the ADU argument. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I wanted to make sure that we did, because I think this is really, people should look up the LA uh, law. Last example, yeah. Yes. And the mm-hmm. fact that, so talk a little bit about that one. That example sure. is the coolest thing. Yeah. So, um, so LA Moss um, is an organization out in Los Angeles that um, had, was trying to look into, you know, how can you build, accessory dwelling units that are um, affordable, not only for people, you know, affordable in terms of their rent, but also affordable to actually build, because that is one of the huge issues for a lot of, um, 
homeowners is they're very expensive to build. And then the people who are building ADUs are the, you know, the well-capitalized people. It's not people who, um, you know, otherwise might be able to use the income uh, more. Uh, and so, uh, so what they have done is um, essentially developed a program to uh, both get um, homeowners to agree to pay for building an accessory dwelling unit at a sort of a flat fee cost um, and to essentially buy into a suite of uh, services like a contractor and an architect and so on who will help walk them through the process because that's the whole other aspect of building. An Absolutely. It's really hard to, for, you know, your average person who's not um, super savvy about real estate, like to figure out how to build this. Um, and then in return uh, for essentially like a financial bonus um, uh, or I guess, you know, reduced cost of producing the accessory dwelling unit, agree to um, house a Section 8 tenant um, for a number of years, after which um, they still own the ADUs. There's no restriction on who they're housing um, and they, you know, sort of own the accessory dwelling unit outright. Um, and so this would be a way to ensure that, you know, the people who are actually living in these homes are um, low-income individuals. And it's not just sort of a way for people who can afford to build an ADU to then get like a new Airbnb property for their home. And I think that's, you know, that is one of the big criticisms here is that, you know, until you make the accessory dwelling unit process easier to build, cheaper to build, it's, you're only going to see kind of high-end ADUs being built. Um, so this is one way of thinking of how you get around it. Uh, you know, the one problem with the LA Moss example is really that it's time consuming. It has been a, you know, a process of figuring it out. It doesn't have the scale. And so I give also the example of United Dwelling, which I also think is a really good um, promising example where the, um, you know, they essentially take the typology of the suburban single family home with a two car garage and turn that into um, the advantage. The fact that there are so many of these identical homes out there means that you can build into that two car garage an accessory dwelling unit using a kit of parts and scale up um, a type of housing there, um, which again would be sort of, you know, primarily geared towards um, perhaps, you know, housing insecure people. And in return, United Dwelling won't charge you for building the accessory dwelling unit. They will just take a cut of the rent. So, um, you know, I think that there are some interesting examples out there. Um, I, you know, the, when I wrote this book, it started off in 2018 at a period where it just felt like housing prices were going up, 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 up. Mm -hmm. And right now, I actually do think that there's a continuing land grab happening. There's a reshuffling happening in terms of who's buying what real estate, but it does feel like some of the super high pressure of prices just escalating every single week has kind of died down. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that impacts, you know, what gets built and where. Absolutely. And that, so multi-generational housing which I think ties in nicely to the ADU and the, and the mm -hmm. tiny home thing, but also um, my family, we, we have a two flat uh, oh, nice. or Cleveland double, we call it. Mm -hmm. And you're pointing out Chicago has their own frame around that, but um, the Cleveland double is, it's phenomenal. And then I went back and I lived in that when I got back from school and my buddies lived on the second. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the cool part about that, I thought from the argument is a lot of this, it has to do with building new and or adapting new, whereas the two flats, they're all over the place. Right. In a lot of these cities, and especially in legacy cities, two flats are everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about the multi-generational housing and where that falls into the conversation, especially when it comes to existing infrastructure that can be right. utilized yeah. a little bit better. Totally. So I start the chapter with the story about the Chicago two flat, an example of a family living there and how, um, you know, just by having essentially a duplex with one apartment on the bottom that a family is living in and then the grandmother's living on the apartment on the top, uh, this has enabled them to live multi-generationally multi with privacy, um, with 
um, and with a sense of community and how well that works. Um, and yet, you know, you were saying that there are a lot of these um, two flats or other types of duplexes around, uh, a lot of them are actually being converted into single family homes because there's a higher price point to be gotten for that. Um, and there hasn't been much done to sort of protect this as a housing type. Likewise, there's not a lot that's been done to essentially incentivize developers to build this from scratch. Um, so what we're seeing is there's not a lot of housing for multi people who want to live multi-generationally. Um, and this is a real problem. And, and the book sort of, you know, it, there's three parts to it, the past, you know, present, and then future, if you will. But there's also, I think, kind of a way in which it goes from concrete into what are the potential solutions that we see in the future here. Um, and so multi-generational housing was something that I thought I would find, you know, surely there are startups much in the same way that there are for co-living, or surely mm-hmm. there are, you know, companies who are getting into the space, you know, the same way that there are for accessory dwelling units. And I really found that actually there's not. Um, and so what a lot of families are doing who are want to live together is they're basically having to go it on their own, figure it out for themselves, how it works. The duplex is a great way in which, you know, just a two family home works really well for two generations of a family. Um, Very common sense. Um, But for a lot of places, like I live in Philadelphia, you see I would say almost none of this being built from scratch. So all the new housing um, is, is, you know, townhomes or, you know, mm. there's a smattering of small apartment buildings that are getting built. Um, and, uh, and, and yet there are, you know, five person or more families who are trying to figure out how to squeeze into, um, into a row home. So I, that chapter, I really try to look at like, what are the benefits of intergenerational living? Um, and that is also one of these uh, topics that has been around in the U.S. for a long time. It used to be super commonplace. It went through a period of becoming, you know, not commonplace anymore. So in the 1950s, um, we had about, you know, 20% of our population living multi-generationally. We're now back to that after taking a very long dip. And I am sure that once the new data comes in after this pandemic, it's just going to be more and more families um, and more people living with kin. And so what what I think we really need here are more um, more policy solutions and incentives to think about, you know, how we could encourage this type of housing. Um, and then also really try to think about, like, how do we preserve the existing housing that we have um, that serves this population so well? Um, and I think, you know, yet again, this kind of comes back to some of the racial bias that is in um, a lot of our housing policies, which is that, you know, people who are living multi-generationally are more likely to be um, people of color. And I think that's frankly part of the reason why um, it's not been embraced by the government or by the private sector to the same degree. And hopefully that will be something that changes in the coming years. Absolutely. And I, I love that AARP comes up because AARP is worth noting because they are champions when it comes to kind of leading the way and the research and the topic and the conversation on this. Um, and on a bunch of things, I've been really pleasantly surprised with yes, where AARP are. shows up. Yes, they <laughs> they are. Um, they're pretty active in the housing policy space because they are fighting for more types of housing that work for multi-generational housing and just more housing options in general. I think that that is sort of what I hope is one of the lessons from the book that, you know, more housing options allows more people to live uh, more affordably and the way that they want to. And that's kind of the goal here. And healthily, right? right. Yes. And this is the part that I think everything else that you had written about was something I'd either kind of heard about, and then you did a great job of helping me have a new understanding. This, I didn't think about at all, the fact that public health, like from a hospital system, from a governmental system, being baked in to literal housing and policy around that. So can you give an overview of what that, like, this is a harder one for me to even try and explain. Sure. Yeah. So, and I don't think that there's really even a good term for this right now. Um, You know, people will talk about housing is health. I kind of talk about it as health-driven housing, but I look at different ways in which cities, um, which can, you know, 
developers um, are th- and, and hospitals and healthcare institutions are thinking about this intersection between health and housing. Um, so, you know, you can look at this from across the spectrum, like I tried to do in all these other different housing types. On the one hand, you have, um, you know, hospitals that are seeing how, you know, they have become these anchor institutions in cities across the country. And they are, you know, heavily invested in, um, you know, everything from procurement chains to, uh, you know, even incentivizing, you know, their employees to live nearby some of them are starting to look at how they could become housing developers as a way for them to house homeless people um, who are some of the biggest users of their emergency room or most frequent visitors of the emergency room. And so, um, you know, a lot of these hospitals have found that, um, first of all, that, you know, housing is health and that simply putting a homeless person in a, in housing is going to help them recover in a way in which simply, you know, keeping them in the ER and then sending them off to a shelter would not. Um, but then they also have like a financial incentive here because creating housing for, um, for homeless people will also keep them out of the emergency room. Um, they're, you know, the homeless are, you know, most likely don't have health insurance. And so um, these are really expensive uh, patients for hospitals compared to, you know, other potential patients that they could be seeing. They also tend to stay in the, the uh, ER longer um, or in the hospital more generally longer. So, um, so I explore a little bit about that, about how, um, we could see a new generation of housing developers who are um, who are invested in ensuring that people are living more healthfully for whatever reason. Um, and so I also give an example of a developer here in Philly who rents housing to um, uh, to low-income households. And as one of the utilities, essentially, that he's providing is a telehealth su- um, service. Yes, so- that was fascinating. Right. And so, I mean, it makes perfect sense. If you are trying to ensure that your uh, tenants are able to pay their bills, you have to ensure that they're healthy because that is such a huge um, reason for why people lose their jobs um, and can have a huge cascading effect in terms of people's finances. Um, And then, you know, finally, I look at uh, places like Serenby in Atlanta, where it's a community, it's called a wellness community. And these have sort of popped up around the country as um, people are trying to figure out, you know, how could they live a more healthy life? And I I certainly think that is part of why, um, you know, a lot of people are kind of re- connecting with nature right now, getting out of the city, sort of enjoying their time away from the hustle and bustle. And um, and this is essentially a development that's trying to think about uh, kind of how you can do the suburban life right with walkability, um, with, uh, you know, deep connection to nature, with a, an intentional community focus, all of that. Um, so I definitely think that a big trend going forward is going to be, you know, how you can be a, uh, how you can create healthier communities for sure. Absolutely. I think so. We've, we've covered an insane amount. This has been <laughs> really great. I know it's like a, a bit of a fire hose here, but we're finally at the point now to kind of talk about how do we get further? How do we make some of these changes uh, permanent? How do we push forward and get past some of the stuff that we're, we're not doing so well? And you talk about a couple of areas and the first one and the biggest one and the most important one that's been a theme throughout is zoning. Right. And so sure. what are what are some of your thoughts outside of the, the ADU um, issues? What are some of the things that we can be thinking about and talking about and advocating on behalf of in terms of zoning at a, at a larger level? Sure. I, well, I think that zoning, uh, allowing less restrictive, less exclusive zoning in, um, you know, more parts of a city, if not citywide, if not, you know, uh, statewide would certainly enable um, a lot of uh, new types of housing, new housing options for people. And like I was saying, I think that is just one of the best ways to ensure that our neighborhoods are more integrated, more affordable, more accessible to people. Um, And so, you know, that's why places like Minneapolis have, um, 
you know, essentially flipped their zoning so that it is, you know, that every place is, every property can be up to a fourplex um, in, uh, every property could be up to a fourplex, whereas for, uh, in most cities, every property can be, you know, a single family home. And if you want to turn it into a fourplex, you're going to have to go through a very long process of, um, uh, trying to get that zoning changed for that property. Um, so I think that, you know, providing that less exclusive zoning um, as just a buy right will just change what gets built. Um, and and we're seeing places like, for example, Portland is building upon the ideas in Minneapolis and helping to refine, like, where were some of the points that didn't quite work in Minneapolis? Like, even though they changed the zoning, it was still too restrictive about, you know, uh, you know, setbacks or the limit of the height of the building and so on. And so how do we just really kind of ensure that people are able to build what they, um, what they can in these, in their neighborhood? So zoning, I think definitely plays a big part of it. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on some of the other different areas. Yeah, absolutely. Happy- so there's federal housing policy. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, uh, Generally speaking, trying to reorient our housing policy from a home ownership oriented policy towards a a more general housing policy um, would be great because it would allow us to look at say like why do we have the mortgage interest deduction? Why is that deduction really benefiting um, primarily the wealthy and um, Uh, And what other kinds of ways could we incentivize wealth creation um, or people retaining their income um, instead? And I really think one of the big unanswered questions is, you know, what if you separated the patient capital of a 30-year mortgage from the home, um, which is really actually creating wealth for people? Um, Are there different things that we could, other different ways in which we could, uh, invest in people over a long period of time and give them access to capital. That's really the thing that um, is driving that wealth creation there. And if it's not tied to housing, think about how that really opens up, like where people would want to live, where they would want to spend their money, how they um, would potentially live. So I think that just a, a reimagining of housing policy that doesn't um, prioritize home ownership would be, um, and single family homes necessarily connected to right. that would be uh, a a big rethinking and an opportunity to think about like, how do we sustain Americans in the future? I would love to see it. And the last thing, media, which I love, I, I love this framework because it's it's true and it's often not discussed and like inside of this the practitioner circle right we all know the media treats it certain way but you talk a lot or not a lot but you but you do a fair amount of assessment of what media is saying and how they could be helpful rather than hurtful in this particular argument Uh, i want to give a couple examples of that sure yeah i think that uh there are just ways in which uh, the media and, uh, you know, perhaps unintentionally biases people against certain types of housing. So living with your family is called doubling up, you know, uh, co-living is called adult dorms. Uh, there are just ways in which anything outside of the typical, you know, family of four housing situation is uh, denigrated in the media. And I think that that would you know, being conscious of that would really change the way that the media characterizes different housing types. I also think that there's just, like I was saying at the very beginning, there's a, just a, a big gap in between, you know, the luxury-oriented, fad, trend-oriented type of coverage of housing and the kind of affordable housing advocacy um, and victimization of the housing crisis kind of um, coverage and uh, a better discussion about how people actually live um, and the advantages of building community um, and thinking about, you know, you know, what the profiles, perhaps not of this person in the amazing kitchen renovation, but of perhaps instead how this person built community in their neighborhood would just really change, you know, how we view things like, um, 
community land trusts and, and by contrast, how we view, say, people who are trying to buy isolation and privacy and so on. So um, I think there's a lot there. And I think, you know, finally, there's a role for each person to play in terms of how they connect with their their community, whether it's being an advocate, like uh, you don't have to be a YIMBY, you can just be an advocate, attend, you know, ensuring that your neighbors and uh, friends are aware of um, housing policy, I think just will do a lot to encourage um, different housing types. And I think it's an area where a lot of Americans are are undereducated. So. Well, thank you so much. The book is called Brave New Home and it is coming out, it'll, depending on when you're listening, it will be out on October 13th, 2020. And if it's beyond that, well, then go get it. But it's up for pre-order now. Thank you so much for taking time to Thank talk. Thank you. This has been great. This has been great to chat with you. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Again, I'm Jack Story, and thanks for listening. If you found this conversation to be worthy of your time, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss another episode. Take care and see you next time. Mm-hmm.